Praise the Lord. This is Andrew Womack, and this is the fourth and final tape in a tape set entitled Lessons from the Christmas Story for All Seasons. And we've already dealt with a number of things. We've talked about the virgin birth, how we conceive a miracle. We've dealt with some things concerning Mary and Joseph, uh, John the Baptist, just a number of things that I consider to be some of the great lessons Uh, that we can learn from what is traditionally called the Christmas story. Today I want to deal with Luke chapter 2, where the angels appeared unto the shepherds and announced the birth of Jesus. Now this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, and sad to say sometimes we can become so familiar with the passage of Scripture that we actually don't know what it says, that we ascribe wrong meanings to it. We attach things to it that it really doesn't mean, and that is definitely what has happened with this passage of Scripture. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now we're going to go on and read uh, other verses, but let me just say in verse 11 here that the angels said that this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. They called Jesus Christ and Lord, and this term for Lord here is the term used for Lord God Almighty, referring to God the Father, God Almighty, and they called Christ Jesus that at his birth. So this just debunks any of the teaching that Jesus was a mere human being who somehow or another transcended or ascended into another level and became the Christ, etc. There are some people who've tried to make that point. But the angel said that he was Christ, the Lord, at his birth. Jesus was 100% God the moment he was born. And he was 100% man, sinless man, but nonetheless he was still God in the flesh, as it says in the book of Timothy. In verse 12 it goes on to say, And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Now, this verse 14 is the one that I want to zero in on. And this is one of the most common things that you hear at the Christmas season is talking about how that Jesus came to bring peace on earth. And you will hear so many people talk about it this time of the year. Let's just not argue. Let's not do these things. We need to walk in love. And that's what Jesus came to bring. And we put a tremendous emphasis on loving our fellow man. Now, let me say, first of all, that I believe that it's wonderful to love our fellow man. And Jesus definitely taught on the subject of love as no one on the face of the earth ever did. The Lord gave us commands about loving people, not only the people who treat us well, but the people who persecute us, the people who spitefully use us. We're supposed to bless them. We're supposed to feed them, that we're supposed to return good for evil. And so, yes, it is a scriptural principle to walk in love with your fellow man. And as much as that can be done, we will be the better off for it. We will be a better testimony. People will come to the Lord, and the world will be a better place for it. And so I am not criticizing walking in love, unity, and harmony with our fellow man. There's a lot of scriptural principles. Even Jesus taught this about unity, etc. But let me just say that when the angels here said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This was not speaking of the fact that Jesus came to bring peace among men. Now again, as I just said, I believe that the Lord encouraged that. He commanded it. It is supposed to happen. But that was really not the purpose of Jesus' advent. Now that may really startle some people. And like I said, especially during the Christmas season, this is emphasized and preached so much 
that we have come to associate the Christmas season with loving your fellow man and things like this. And certainly there's benefit to it, but that's really not what these angels were praising God for. Let me just present it this way, that if that is what Jesus came to do was to bring peace on earth among men, to reconcile men and to stop wars and hatred and strife, If that's what Jesus came to do, well, then no doubt that has happened a million times uh, when people have gotten born again. They turn around and forgive others, and I could give many examples of that. But on a whole, that hasn't happened. I mean, there have been multitudes, multitudes, multitudes of wars since the time that Jesus came. He did not bring peace on the earth. He did not bring an end to war. As a matter of fact, you know, there have been so many wars and it seems like that as man has increased his ability to destroy each other and our capabilities of destructions that the wars have gotten bloodier and bloodier. You know, the Second World War was fought basically to be the war to end all wars. First World War, they said the same thing about that, the Second World War. And yet since then, in just the U.S., we've had the Korean conflict, the Vietnam conflict. We've had a million Uh, little um, peacekeeping forces that that have intervened here and there. You know, right after the Berlin Wall came down, I believe that was in 89 or 90, but I think it was in 89, November of 89 is when the Berlin Wall came down. You heard a lot of people saying that this was the end of communism and therefore the end of war, and people were talking about an unprecedented amount of peace, amount of peace, as never before, and some people were deluded into thinking that this was basically going to stop the conflict in the world. And it certainly hasn't. Within about 18 months after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the United States and a coalition of nations were involved in invading Iraq in retaliation for Iraq, invading Kuwait, and it was one of the largest military buildups since possibly World War II. And not only those major conflicts, but there have been uh, civil wars, fighting, multitudes of people killed. Of course, now we see the terrorist, uh, the war on terrorism and all of the things that are going on. So my point is that those who think that Jesus came to put an end to strife on earth and to reconcile men, then this scripture in Luke chapter 2 just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, it could cause a tremendous amount of confusion. Let me read the words of this song to you. The words of this were written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1863. That was during the Civil War. And the thing that occasioned this song, of course, it was around Christmas time, but he was writing about the death of his son, who was killed, uh, I believe, on the uh, side of the Union in the U.S. Civil War. And I believe, I'm not sure of this, but I think his son was killed at Gettysburg. That's really not an important detail, but he was killed in the Civil War. And here's the words of this song. And the title of the song is, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And uh, there's four stanzas to it. It goes, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's exactly the verse that we're using, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Verse 2 says, I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to man. Verse 3, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to man. Then verse 4 says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill toward man. So this is exactly what I'm trying to say about this passage of Scripture. Wadsworth, or, or excuse me, Longfellow right here, admitted that there was a contradiction between what he was seeing in the human race and what Luke chapter 2, verse 14 says that the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward man. Now, if you interpret this as peace, goodwill among men, 
to reconcile differences among men, well, then this really does beg for somebody to say it didn't work, that it hasn't been accomplished, as Wadsworth Longfellow referred to in this song. And, of course, we could go on and on and talk about that. You know, statistics show that at Christmas time is when there are probably more suicides than any other time. And there's multiple reasons for that. Part of that is the fact that the people are emphasizing love and unity and family and those who are deficient in those areas. It just seems to make their situation worse. And so out of despair, they commit suicide. But some of it is because there is a lot of stress, a lot of um, heartache at Christmas time because people are expecting just a sense of euphoria, a sense of unity and love, and it's often disappointed. I bet you every person listening to this tape can relate to some time or another that you've had a family gathering, and instead of it being a wonderful, exciting time, somebody uh, just gets in the flesh, has a flesh flash, and tempers flare, and things happen, and it's been a hard time. I've certainly been there myself. And so anyway, this is not what... Luke chapter 2, verse 14 is talking about. To further prove this, let me take some of Jesus' own teaching. In Matthew chapter 10, and beginning with verse 34, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Now, how does that fit with Luke 2, 14? The angels were proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards man. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own house. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So right here, this is saying, Jesus said, don't think I came to send peace on the earth. I didn't come to send peace, but a sword. There is going to be division. And certainly that happened. That happened in Jesus' own family. He was persecuted. I believe it was in Luke chapter 7 by his own brothers. They mocked him. If you're the Christ, go up because no man seeks to be known and hides himself. In other words, they didn't believe in him is what the next verse goes on to say. For neither did his brethren believe in him. They mocked him. He was criticized. Jesus was rejected in the hometown of Nazareth. And in Mark chapter 6, he said this is to be the fulfillment of the prophecy that no prophet is without honor except in his, you know, in his own hometown and among his own kindred. And he had to move to another place. So Jesus talked about rejection and persecution. Jesus was certainly persecuted. The apostle Paul came along and said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12, that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 during the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Beware when all men speak well of you. So For so spake they of the false prophets which were before you. And on and on and on we could go. Adversion, rejection, You know, resistance towards the gospel is talked about so much and it's also modeled in Scripture that nobody can really believe that the gospel is promising that when you come to the Lord, it will end all strife. That is not so. Now, I will say this, that if you will walk in what Jesus has purchased, you can reach a place that regardless of what people do, you can turn the other cheek. You can walk in love and you can walk in forgiveness and you don't have to be eaten up with bitterness and unforgiveness. And I certainly believe that that's true and available. And I can truthfully say that right now I don't have anything against any person. I've got people that hate me, that lie about me, criticize me, threaten to kill me. I've been kidnapped, spit on, all kinds of things happen. And I hadn't got a hard feeling against anybody. And so I really do believe that we can appropriate the grace of God to help us walk in love. But that does not mean that I am at peace with every person. I don't have anything against any person. I don't hold anything against them. But there's some people that just hate me. And there's some people that will hate me as I continue to minister the word of God. It offends people and stuff. So 
Becoming a Christian, walking with the Lord, does not mean that you are going to have peace with everybody. Matter of fact, it means just the opposite. Those who receive your message, you may have peace and unity and bring great joy to them, but there will be rejection and opposition to the gospel. And I can guarantee you there will be people that will hate you. And just as Jesus said, there will be division. You will have family members reject you. If you don't understand this, if you have a false illusion that Jesus came to just bring absolute peace among men, then you are going to be grossly disappointed and confused and possibly come under condemnation thinking, what's wrong with me? And yet that is not what the scripture is teaching. So what is the scripture talking about? When the angels sang and said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let me just make some statements here that I may have to spend a little bit of time explaining because a lot of people don't look at things this way, but this is accurate according to scripture. When they were proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. This was not speaking of goodwill and peace among men so that division, strife, envy, jealousy, and things like this would cease. But this was talking about peace and goodwill towards men from God. This wasn't talking of war between men ceasing, but rather the war that was between God and man was over. Jesus came to reconcile men unto God. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says that. And Jesus came and ended the hostility, the enmity that was between God and man. Now, that should be obvious, but it's amazing how many people don't really recognize this. If you become a really good student of the word, you will find out that there was enmity. There was separation between God and man. When God created Adam and Eve, they were in union and in fellowship with God. But when man sinned against God, he rebelled against God and he separated himself from God. Now, I've got a much, much, much more detailed teaching on this in a tape series entitled The Nature of God. And then I have a book entitled The True Nature of God that deals with all of this in much greater detail than what I'm able to do. And if you haven't heard this, if it's not clear to you, if the things I say cause questions, then you really do need to get that tape set or my book and study that because this is one of the greatest revelations. It, It answers many, many questions. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God was still willing to deal with mankind separate from their sin. It's not as some people depict that God just got ticked off and holy God could have nothing to do with unholy man. And so he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden because he didn't want anything to do and they were out of his presence. That's not so. And again, I go into much greater detail to justify this. But what actually happened was Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden to protect the tree of life, not out of punishment, but so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever in a fallen, corruptible state. God had something better prepared and planned. And he even prophesied that in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, he prophesied that the seed of the woman, speaking of the virgin birth of Christ, would destroy the head of the serpents, talking about having victory over Satan. And uh, through that, that implies the resurrection of our bodies, etc. So the Lord had a better plan, and he didn't drive man out of his presence, out of hatred and rejection. And you can prove that because in the fourth chapter of Genesis, God was still walking and talking and fellowshipping with man. When Moses came along, the Lord had Moses separate the people and sanctify them, and then he came down on Mount Sinai in a visible form as a cloud of fire over the mountain, and he spoke in an audible voice to the people. In other words, he was it was very similar to the way he communicated with Adam and Eve in the garden. He talked with them in an audible voice. And so man ran away from God, separated from God. Nearly 2,000 years later, God tried to bring men 
back into relationship and fellowship with him at Mount Sinai. He spoke in an audible voice, and the people put their fingers in their ears, screamed and cried out for fear at the awesome presence of God, and they went to Moses and told Moses, don't let the Lord speak to us anymore because we're sinful. We're unworthy, and he'll destroy us. And so Moses repeated those words to God, and God said, well, they are sinful, and it is ungodly, and he just recognized that man had fallen, had degenerated to such a degree that he couldn't really establish communion with them and communication with them the way that he did Adam and Eve. And so he says it's good what they've said. And so instead, he gave the law, and he began to relate to people on the basis of rules and regulations instead of a personal relationship. Now, all of this was only temporary. Galatians chapter 3 makes this point very clearly that the law was only temporary. It was added. In other words, there was already a covenant of faith that God had made with Abraham in Genesis 15, and it was 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses, and it was added to. In other words, it did not supersede and it didn't replace. It was just a temporary way of God dealing with people until the promised Messiah should come. And so here's my point. For nearly 2,000 years, God basically turned the other cheek. He turned the other direction. He left man to themselves, and sin escalated at such a rapid rate that if God hadn't have done something to restrain the amount of sin there wouldn't have been a virgin left for the Messiah to be born through. And so the Lord had to intervene. He came down and first of all tried speaking to the people, but they wouldn't have that. And so he had to relate to them on the basis of rules and regulations, laws. And these laws would have been of no benefit. They would have had no power to do anything if he hadn't have enforced them with punishments. The way that I look at this, again, this is not a mean, harsh God wanting to do this. If he would have wanted to just rule relationship with people through laws and regulations and kill somebody and stone them every time they broke a law, he could have done that when Adam and Eve first sinned. But he waited 2,000 years. Why? Because that was not the way that God is. God is a loving God. But again, as I say, because of his lack of punishment, upon sin, people were taking that lack of punishment as approval or indifference towards sin. And even though God wasn't bringing his judgment on sin, Satan was extracting or exacting a tremendous toll through sin. Romans 6.16 wasn't written in the Old Testament, but it was in the heart of God, and it's a principle, and it's a part of the laws that he built his kingdom upon, And Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So that scripture shows us that sin, if you yield to sin, you yield to Satan, the author of that sin, and he comes and brings death. So even though God wasn't bringing his judgment upon sin until the time that the law was given, that's in Romans 5.13, Sin was still having a very damaging effect on the human race because it was giving Satan inroad. And Satan was corrupting our conscience, our mind, our heart at such a rate that it was just polluting the human race. So God had to intervene. He tried to speak to man, but they wouldn't have it. They were too sin conscious to fellowship with the holy God. So God put down these laws and enforced them very strictly. I relate this to like the way we train children. You know, when you have a one-year-old child, you can't tell that. You just can't reason with that child and tell them, you know, don't go over there and take that toy from your sibling because if you do that, well, then you're giving place to the devil because the devil is the one who takes. God's a giver. The Lord says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so when you are operating like that, you're being selfish. That's the nature of the devil. And Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you 
are giving place to the devil. You're never going to have friends because, you know, to have friends, a man must be friendly. you got to think about other people. If you're just selfish and always wanting to use people for your own advantage, you'll never have friends. You know, a one-year-old doesn't understand that. You go on and tell them, says, and if you get a job, you'll never be able to keep a job because you'll only want the paycheck. You won't do a good job. You'll just be selfish, uh, and so you'll lose your job. If you do get married, your marriage will fall apart because Proverbs 13.10 says only by pride, self-centeredness comes contention. If you're a self-centered person, you're going to have contention and strife. You'll never be able to hold a marriage together. See, if you try and tell those kind of things to a one-year-old, That's just right over their head. They don't understand that kind of stuff. You can't reason with them that way. But you know what you can do? And you have to do this. If you wait until two or three or four or more before you start reasoning with a child and trying to get them to respond, then that's the reason they call them the terrible twos. But, you know, you have to restrain a child from doing evil even before they really understand and reason. How do you do that? It's very simple. You just tell them, says, if you go over there and take that toy from your brother or sister again, I'm going to spank you. And they may not realize that there's any spiritual dynamics. They may not know that there's a God or a devil, a heaven or a hell. But the next time the devil comes and says, go take that toy, they'll say no. They can learn to resist the devil because of a fear of a spanking. And in a very real sense, there's a comparison here between this and the way people were before the new covenant. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that a natural man, that's talking about a non-born again man, which all people prior to the new covenant were not born again. They were a natural man. It says the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto them. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. In the new covenant, we are now called the children of God, and specifically in Galatians chapter 4, we aren't infants, but we have matured to the place that we are now sons of God, and therefore God deals with us differently than he did under the old covenant. The old covenant system of laws, rules, and regulations was similar to a child that you just say, you do that again, I'm going to spank you. In the old covenant, you violate this law, you get this punishment. God smites you with this. He doesn't answer your prayer. On and on it goes. There's a punishment to go along with every violation. But you know what? As you get older, you don't you don't go by punishments. Now, does that mean that you've changed your standards? No, but now you understand that those laws and regulations were only temporary to get you pointed in the right direction. But the reason to do the right thing isn't because you're going to be punished. Our punishment has now been taken by Jesus, and we have peace between us and God. God's not mad at us anymore. But does that mean that you don't live a holy life? No, you still live holy because it's the right thing to do, but not for the purpose of appeasing an angry God. God has already been appeased through Jesus. The war is over. Glory to God in the highest. There's peace on earth from God to man, and God's not ticked off anymore. Again, I can liken this to the fact that when I was a little kid, we lived on a busy street, And my mother threatened me within an inch of my life if I ever crossed that street without looking both ways. And I guarantee you, I got whooped a lot of times. And you know what? When I was a kid, the reason I would look both ways before I crossed the street was because I was afraid of my mother spanking me. And she used that to get me to do what was right before I really reasoned properly. There wasn't much reasoning to it. I just didn't do it because I didn't want a spanking. But you know, now, at the time I'm making this tape, I'm 53 years old. And my mother is turning 90 in just a couple of weeks. And uh, you know what? If I was to cross the street now, and if I didn't look both ways, and if I made it to the other side, what would you think if I said, Oh, man, I forgot to look both ways. Don't tell my mother. She'll beat me within an inch of my life. If I started using that logic and using a fear of punishment as the reason why I'm sorry that I didn't look both ways before I crossed the street, you would look at me and think something's wrong. 
you know what? Your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. Something's not right because that's not the right motivation. At one time, that's how I got started in the habit. But, you know, now I've grown to a place that I recognize the real purpose of looking both ways before you cross the street isn't so you won't get a spanking, but it's so you won't get run over. And now I've gone beyond that. Well, the Old Testament said that we had to do this and do this and observe all of these laws. And many people thought that that was just because God hated us if we violated those laws. That would be as stupid as me saying that my mother hated me if I crossed the street without looking both ways. No, it was just the opposite. My mother loved me so much that she didn't want me to go across a street without looking both ways because she knew that there was danger in doing that. And so it was actually motivated by love, the fact that she punished me. And see, I eventually grew to a place to where I realized that the reason to look before you cross a street isn't for fear of uh, whipping. It's so that you won't be run over by a car. The reason not to commit adultery isn't because God hates you if you commit adultery. It's because God knows that adultery destroys you. It destroys other people. It corrupts the land there. It is just a devastating thing. And God hates to see you devastated. So God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And if you did it, there was a severe punishment. In the old covenant, it was stoning you to death. And it was to give an example to other people so that they wouldn't do it. But under the new covenant, did you know what? God still doesn't want you to commit adultery, but it's not because he was ever mad at you. Now that you're born again, you should have enough perception to recognize the reason God told you to marry one person and stay with them until death do you part is because that's good for you. That's the way God made you. The reason you aren't supposed to be a homosexual isn't because God just hates homosexuals and he can't stand and he wants to destroy all homosexuals. No, God loves people who are homosexuals, but he hates what they're doing because he knows that it is not fulfilling. You know, even in the natural realm, you could totally look at this aside from religion. If you just took natural statistics and I don't have them in front of me right now, but I've seen them. And the uh, the suicide rate among gay people is infinitely, infinitely, I mean multiple times larger than it is among the normal uh, population. The uh, numbers of depressed, defeated people and on and on, sick, sickness, disease, other things, there is just a uh, tremendous Uh, multiplication of all kinds of problems because that's not the way God made us to be. And so God hates homosexuality, not the homosexuals, because he knows that that is not right. They are not going to be fulfilled. They will never have the joy that God intended. They will never be productive. For one thing, they could never fulfill God's requirement to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. It's just a perversion. It is totally yielding to a lie of the devil, and Satan only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So at one time in the Old Covenant, any time you found a homosexual, it was punishable by death, so that there was such a strong statement made, it literally caused people to depart from sin through fear, the same motivation that you use in spanking a child. But when you get born again, we no longer are under that Old Covenant. That doesn't mean that the rules have changed. It means that the punishment, the curse of the law was borne by Jesus. And no longer do we have to fear the punishment and the wrath of God. In a sense, there was a war between God and man because man was not keeping the commands of God. We were constantly violating them and we were always, always in need of a whooping. We were always in need of punishment. And because of this, it put a fear between man and God. And there was this enmity and there was no peace between God and man. I mean, the author of Romans, the apostle Paul, made this very clear when he was writing in the book of Romans. And he kind of summarized some of the things he said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you can ever have peace with God 
is through just accepting a Savior, who receiving right standing or peace with God through faith. You can't ever earn it. If you are under this works mentality that the Old Testament law produced, to where you feel like you've got to do all of these things to be accepted with God, there can be no peace because you will never obtain. You might do better than I've done. You might do better than somebody else. But who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Romans 6.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23, excuse me. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so you might be better than I am, but you still aren't up to God's standard. The only way you're ever going to have this peace is for Jesus to come and take your punishment for your sins and let him suffer the wrath of God. God put his wrath, his punishment upon Jesus, and then Jesus turns around after he bore your punishment and gives you freedom. He lets you go. You know, it's very similar to if you have have a traffic ticket or something like that, and if you appeared before the judge, because the judge is just, he has to pass sentence on you. You broke the law, and he's got to defend the law. And so he passed sentence on you and say the sentence is 90 days in jail or something like that. Or let's say it's a $1,000 fine, something like that. And so the judge passes a sentence on you. Because he's a judge, he's got to uphold the law. So he had to give the punishment that was prescribed. But what if the judge also loved you? And what if the judge was your friend? Well, because he's your friend, he couldn't do away with the law. But you know what he could do? He, After he pronounced judgment, then he could take off his robes, walk around in front of the bench, and he could pay your fine. Or he could literally do your time. He could pay your punishment. And so that's what God did. God as God, as a righteous, holy God, had said, if you do these things, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. And so that was a judgment prescribed against you. Well, all of us have sinned, and so we were experiencing death. Not only physical death, but emotional death, financial death, physical death, uh, health death, and anything that was just less than what God intended us to be. Depression, discouragement, sickness, anger, strife, all of those are forms of death. They are a result of sin. The wages of sin or the payment of sin is death. Anything that came as a result of sin is a form of death. And so it was a prescription. It was the punishment that if you break the law, you get death. And that's the way that it was up until the time of Jesus. But when Jesus came, this was God taking his robes off and literally becoming flesh, and he took our payment, and he suffered our judgment. He didn't do away with the judgment. He didn't say that what we did wasn't wrong. He didn't say that I'm changing the rules, and from now on it's not wrong to commit adultery. It's not wrong to be a homosexual. That's not what he did, but he paid for our transgressions. Isaiah chapter 53 makes this very clear. And it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And it goes on to say that you know he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. But all of these things were done for us. Jesus took our punishment, and therefore the Almighty could be just in giving the punishment And yet, because of his love, he didn't have to injure us. He injured himself. He injured his own son and caused his son to suffer separation and punishment so that we could go free. And that's what these angels were singing about, that God had found a way to end the war, this cycle of violence. There was no way that we were going to end it because we were continually transgressing God's commands. It was no way that we were ever going to quit doing what was wrong so that God could quit judging us. And so the only uh, way out of this was for God to come and place our punishment for our sins on himself 
and suffer for the sins of the entire human race. And the angels foresaw this. And this is what they sang about, that glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards man. God has found a way to stop the war, to stop the cycle of violence, this continual punishment for sin. And because he's holy and just, he couldn't just change what was right and holy because he he couldn't make unholy laws just because we were unholy. So what he did, he found a way to punish our sins in the physical body of his own son and therefore let us go free. Man, that is awesome. And that's what these angels were singing about. And you know what I'm saying here is really different than what a large part of quote-unquote Christianity is preaching today. Much of Christianity has not seen the fact that Jesus totally reconciled man back unto God. They believe that he did an initial step, that you can be born again through what Jesus did, but then as a whole, Christendom today is still preaching that God answers our prayers, loves us, and deals with us proportional to our performance, and that is not right. You not only got saved by putting faith in a Savior, but you are maintained in your relationship with God because of a faith in a Savior. All of us still come short. You know, I've lived a very holy life by most people's standards. I've never said a word of profanity in all of my life. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I mean, I have been Mr. Righteous, Mr. Holy. And yet, did you know I still needed a Savior because I've sinned, come short of God's standard. I still lied. I was selfish. I was angry. I was bitter. And on and on you could go. Not only the things I did wrong, but the things I failed to do. I didn't love people the way I should. I wasn't the way that God created man to be. And so I needed a Savior. But you know what? Even after I've been born again, I'm still not everything I need to be. There are times that I'm just selfish and think about myself. I don't think about other people. There are times that I get in the flesh that I do things wrong. And there's certainly many times that I could do much, much more, and I don't. You know, there's there's failures in my life, and uh, because of that, I'm not ministering to people as effectively as I should. I'm still not perfect. I'm still making mistakes. And so the point that I'm making is I not only got saved by putting faith in a Savior, but I still am loved by God today, not because I deserve it, but because all of my punishment was placed on Jesus and Jesus gave me all of his righteousness. I gave Jesus all of my sin. In return, he made me his righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that that God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became what I was, which was unholy and sinful, so that I might be made what he was, which was righteous and holy. Jesus bore my sins so that I could bear his righteousness. And that's not only talking about the moment you get saved, but even after I'm saved and I sin, I'm still in right standing with God through what God has done for me. And that's what the angels were proclaiming. They were rejoicing over something that most Christians still don't realize. And that is that our relationship with God not only begins, but continues and concludes because of what Jesus has done, but not because of any righteousness, not because of any worthiness on our own. God is not angry at me. Again, the traditional church believes that you get born again by grace, but then they would tell a person that if you go out and sin, God will be angry with you. God won't answer your prayer. God won't fellowship with you. He will break fellowship with you if you sin. That is not what the Word of God teaches. Let me turn back to these passages of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 53. I quoted from that just a moment ago, and Isaiah 53 is the passage that is all prophesying about the coming Messiah, how that he would bear our infirmities, carry our diseases, by his stripes we are healed. Then in chapter 54, it starts giving us some of the benefits of this new covenant which was being prophesied that it would come to pass after the Messiah had made the atonement for us. And in Isaiah chapter 54, it starts off by saying, Sing, O barren, 
thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Now, what does that mean? That's just simply saying that through Jesus, the people who were spiritually barren, spiritually sterile through unworthiness and unholiness are now able to have relationship with God and through that produce all kinds of fruit, blessing, benefit, just the power of God manifest in their life. In other words, the people who were hopeless because they were so sinful now can rejoice because they are going to be more productive than the people who were maintaining all of this holiness. And we saw that come to pass during the life of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, the quote-unquote holy people, didn't receive the benefits of the kingdom of God because they just refused to humble themselves and receive it as a gift. But the publicans, the harlots, the tax collectors, all of these people, they were the ones that the Lord ministered to, that they received his ministry and they received the benefit because they accepted it by grace. In verse 2, Isaiah 54, 2, it says, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. And this is again talking about those people who were excluded from the blessings of God because they couldn't match the standards, can now enter into the kingdom of God and receive the great blessings because we get it through a Savior, not through our own performance. In verse 4 it says, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and thou shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy Maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. So this is again talking about those who were excluded from the power of God, the blessing of God in their life because of their unworthiness. Now Jesus has become their maker by grace, not through performance. And because of this, man, they are going to receive the blessings of God. In verse 6, Isaiah 54, 6, it says, For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. In other words, because they didn't conform to the covenant, they failed to match up to the standards God had put forth, they were like a forsaken wife. They And that's the way that they had been. They had been cast out and refused. But God had come after them and redeemed them. In verse 7, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. So all of this is leading up to the verses I'm headed towards, and he's basically just talking about how that you were forsaken because you didn't measure up to the covenant, but through the Benefit of the Christ, which was prophesied in Isaiah 52 and 53. Here's the benefits that now, even though you still don't measure up, you are not going to be barren anymore. You're going to break forth on the right and on the left. You are blessed. God is your maker. He's your husband and all of these blessings. And then he says this in verse 9, Isaiah 54, 9. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. Man, this is an awesome passage of scripture. The waters of Noah are talking about the flood that he sent in the days of Noah. And after the flood, he made a covenant with Noah, I believe Genesis chapter 9. And he said, I'll never destroy the earth with a flood again. And as a proof of it, he said his bow, or the rainbow, in the sky every time that it rains. And that was a, a sign of the covenant. And this covenant was not based on compliance. In other words, it was an unequal covenant. It didn't have any conditions. If it had conditions on it, well, then God would have destroyed the earth again because mankind have corrupted their way again, I believe, just about as bad as it was in the days of Noah. But the reason that the earth has never been destroyed by a flood, the entire earth, is because God made a covenant 
that regardless of what you do, I will never do this. I will never destroy the earth again with the flood. And he says that that same type of covenant, an unconditional covenant, is the kind of covenant that I am making with you through Jesus, through the Messiah, that I will never be angry with you nor rebuke you. Now, how does that fit with most people's theology? Man, you hear lots of Christians talking about how God was angry with them. You hear lots of preachers saying, if you do this, God's angry. I was in a church one time where a man stood up and in a prophecy said, quote, unquote, thus saith the Lord, God is angry with you. God is mad at you. Well, how does that fit with this? Saying that he would never, he has sworn that he would never be wroth with us nor rebuke us. See, a lot of people don't understand this. They think, no, God's angry with me all the time. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says God is angry with the wicked every day. But notice that that's talking about people outside the covenant. In the new covenant, those who accept Jesus and his uh, salvation as payment for their sins, they enter into a new covenant, which is being expounded upon here in Isaiah 54. And part of that covenant is that God will never be angry with you nor rebuke you again. Now, God will correct you. But it's never in anger. It's not punishment. It's correction. And he doesn't do it with sickness and disease. He doesn't do it with poverty and death and destruction. The way he corrects is expounded in, uh, I believe it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. It could be 2 Peter 3, 16, where it says that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. The way God corrects is through Scripture. In the next verse, verse 17, it says that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto good work, all good works. There isn't, There doesn't have to be a step two or a step three. God's Word will make you perfect. You don't need the correction of the Word plus hard knocks, plus sickness, plus, plus tragedy, plus suffering. That is a wrong doctrine, and it's voiding this new covenant. Now, you can find in the old covenant examples of where God struck people and did things and punishment and harshness. But again, there was like a war, enmity between God and man in the new covenant, in the old covenant. Under the new covenant, you don't find that. The war is over. That's what the angels were proclaiming. And the sad fact is most Christians have missed this truth. It goes on to say, in Isaiah 54:10 it says for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed but my kindness shall not depart from thee neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee This is talking about a covenant of peace this is what the angels sang about in Luke 2:14 Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill towards man there was a new ushering in of peace, a new relationship between God and man that did not exist under the Old Testament. The Old Testament by no means could be called a covenant of peace. It was a covenant of performance with harsh punishments, and as a result, it it resulted in enmity and separation between God and man. Under the New Covenant, though, We are now ushered into relationship with God because our sins were placed on a Savior, on Jesus, and God sees us righteous and holy and pure, not because of what we did, but because of what a substitute did for us. That's the Lord Jesus. And we now have peace with God. And it says here in Isaiah 54.10 that the mountains will depart and the hills be removed, but his kindness shall not depart from us, neither shall the covenant of his peace be removed. That means as long as you can see mountains and hills, then God hasn't taken his kindness or his covenant of peace away. You may live in flatland where you are, but I can see mountains out my window right here from my house. And you know what? I can tell you whether you can see them or not, they have not departed. There is coming a time when God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. But until that time, this covenant of peace is secure. God is not angry with you. God is not rebuking you. The war is over. You know, I actually heard a story. I presume that this is true. I don't know it personally, but I I heard a preacher use this example that during World War II, right at the end of World War II, there was some Japanese that was, or maybe a couple of Japanese that were on one of those Pacific islands, 
and uh, they had a bomb explode close to them. They temporarily lost their hearing. The war ended. They flew over in planes and said in, um, uh, you know, in English and Japanese that the war was over, but this temporary hearing loss caused these guys not to hear it, and they had survived for I'm not sure the amount of time, but I think it was over 10 years after the end of World War II on one of these remote islands. They were still eating berries and killing their own food and thought they were still fighting the war and being faithful to the emperor. And finally they were rescued and they had fought a war that had ended at least 10 years before. And you know what? That's tragic. And you think about the hardships and the suffering and the things. Back in Japan, the nation was being restored. They could have gone back to abundance and they could have been in on the rebuilding and been back with their family and so many benefits. And yet they missed all of that because they were fighting a war that was over. And you know what? Christians are fighting a war that ended 2,000 years ago. God's wrath was satisfied through Jesus. And some people think, oh, you're making light of sin. Well, no, if you're thinking that you still have to atone for your sins and suffer and bear the punishment of the Lord, then you are making light of Jesus. I'm not making light of sin. Sin was terrible, but Jesus was infinitely greater than sin. And when he bore our sin, he was so holy, so pure, that his suffering was more than enough punishment more than enough compensation for all of my sin and the sin of the entire world. And God is not ticked off anymore. God has had his wrath satisfied. Now, there is coming a future wrath that is spoken about in the book of Revelation. But really, I'm not sure that this is technically correct, but in a um, real sense, it's not going to be the wrath of God on us for our individual sins. Those were all placed on Jesus It'll be God's wrath coming upon the people who rejected Jesus and rejected his salvation. So it won't be the issue of God judging them because of their individual sins, but it'll be because they rejected Jesus. And so, anyway, the future wrath is still off in the future at this time under this covenant. God is not angry with us. He is not bringing his wrath and punishment. We have a covenant of peace. Look at this passage of Scripture out of Ephesians chapter 6 when it's talking about the armor of God. And it said in verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Notice again, it's saying that it's the gospel of peace. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is all about telling people the war is over. God is not dealing with you based on your performance. God is not angry at you anymore. And your sins have been placed on a Savior. And all you have to do to receive it is not make atonement for all of your sins and promise you'll never do things wrong again. But rather, you just have to put faith in that atonement, in that Savior. And if you will do that, the war is over. God's not angry. That is the gospel. As a matter of fact, if anybody is preaching something else, that God is angry with you and God's not going to bless you unless you do everything right, that's not the gospel. If it's not ministering peace between God and man, it's not the gospel. And if that's a true statement, which I believe it is, then a lot of what is being preached today is not the gospel. And I believe that that's true. It says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God. The reason we aren't seeing people set free and our nation and our society impacted anymore is because we aren't preaching the same gospel that the early New Testament church preached. They were preaching freedom from the law, that you were just reconciled to God by grace, not by your performance. The church has has degraded, has uh, evolved in a negative direction back into legalism, and we're preaching the same message that the scribes and Pharisees were preaching. We are religious scribes and Pharisees, many re- Christian people today, and because of that, that's the reason they aren't having power in their life, and they aren't having power to change their society. 
I tell you, this is what the angels sang about. It was the gospel of peace. They saw that the war between God and man was over. And that's the good news. The good news is God's not angry anymore. He's not even in a bad mood. God loves you. And God loves you a lot. Does that mean that you go live in sin? No. There's still consequences. If you cross a street without looking both ways, you can be killed. It's still to your advantage to follow the laws. But you know what? God's not angry at you. It's like my mother. She's not going to beat me if I cross the street without looking both ways. But she might tell me, you know, you should do it. You should still remember. But she'll never beat me over that again. <laughs> Amen. Now I'm I'm on my own. God loves us. And you know what? It's still to our benefit to live a holy life. But the war is over. I pray that you'll receive this and that you will be able to sing with those angels Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men.